0: A warm welcome to Tomorrow's World. I'm happy you can join us today as we explore one of the greatest challenges to mankind, how to find peace. James Cement's Encyclopedia of Conflicts Since World War II, Second Edition, lists more than 200 conflicts from 1945 to 2005, and no continent was spared during that 60 year period. And peace still remains as elusive as ever. Why? Why can we send men to the moon and explore the depths of the oceans but cannot discover the way to peace? We can engineer powerful computers so small we can hold them in our hands, and we can compose beautiful pieces of music, but we can't compose a recipe for peace. And our technological advances haven't helped. Following the Japanese surrender aboard the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay, General Douglas MacArthur described man's precarious state most eloquently in a radio address to the world. He reiterated his description of the problem man now faces in his farewell address to Congress using the starkest of terms. Men since the beginning of time have sought peace. Military alliances, balances of powers, leagues of nations all in turn failed leaving the only path to be by the way of the crucible of war. We have had our last chance. If we do not devise some greater and more equitable system, Armageddon will be at our door. But it didn't stop there. He went on to explain the cause and potential solution to man's problem. The problem basically is theological and involves a spiritual recrudescence and improvement of the human character that will synchronize with our almost matchless advances in science, art, literature, and all material cultural developments of the past 2,000 years. It must be of the Spirit if we are to save the flesh. My friends, there is a cause for war, and there is a cause for peace but sadly the human race, with all of our intellectual ability, fails to take the way that leads to peace. But there is good news ahead. Peace will come, and likely in the lifetime of many of you watching this program, but not in the way you might think. So if you'd like to know how peace will come to this troubled planet, stay tuned! A warm welcome once again to Tomorrow's World, where on today's program I'm going to give you the cause of war, the way to peace, and how peace will eventually come to our troubled world. Now I know that sounds incredible, my friends, but peace is coming. It will not be as a result of summits or any other form of human effort, for as the Bible tells us in Isaiah 59 and verse 8, the way of peace, they have not known. But in spite of this, peace is coming, and it is sure. We must go back in time to the beginning of the human race if we are to understand how we arrived where we are today in our miserable state of affairs. Why is it that we don't have peace between nations, between various ethnic groups, between neighbors, and within families? According to the Bible, God placed the first man and the first woman in a garden that was filled with plants and animals of all kinds. Among the trees that bore fruit, there were two special ones. The tree of life symbolized God's rule over man. By partaking of it, man would be looking to God to reveal the difference between right and wrong. In short, how to live in harmony with God and fellow man. Choosing that tree would lead to eternal life, But our first parents were warned to stay away from the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice God's instructions in Genesis, the second chapter, and verses 16 and 17. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This tree symbolized mankind taking upon himself the right to determine what is good and what is evil, and to choose this tree meant pain, heartache, suffering, conflict, and death. On the surface, the choice seems rather simple, but our human nature is such that we do not want God telling us what to do. We would rather decide for ourselves, and that is exactly what Adam and his wife Eve did. There is a real spirit world, and Satan the devil appeared to Eve in the form of a serpent and challenged God's statement that by eating of that tree it would lead to death. Now notice he flattered her and played on her vanity. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, or we might say enlightened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In effect, he told her that God was unfair, that He was lying to her, that she did not need God, and that she should be able to make up her own mind concerning lifestyle choices. Verse 6 confirms that Satan's tactic worked. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Ever since we have been making the same choice, to reject God's way and to do it our own way. And that way is the way of selfishness and self-interest. How often you hear leaders of nations refer to national interest in the decisions they make. Sadly, whether we are talking about nations, neighbors, or two people in marriage, there is far too much self-interest and far too little outgoing concern. As General Douglas MacArthur rightly said, there must be a change in our very nature if there is to be real peace. The trees teach us two ways of life. The first is the way of give, of outgoing concern for the other person. The second is the way of get, taking care of number one, with little or no regard for the other person. And that is man's nature, self-centered and looking out for himself. Former U.S. President Richard Nixon well understood man's nature and how it operates. He understood it on a geopolitical scale and how self-interest is at the heart of every nation's foreign policy. In his book, Real Peace, Mr. Nixon chided poets, authors, and songwriters about their dreamy ideas of peace. Those who make peace at the typing table, rather than at the negotiating table, have the luxury of being peacemakers without having to grapple with complex problems in the rough and tumble world of real international diplomacy. To them, the only obstacle to peace is the regrettable lack of leaders who are as selfless and idealistic as they claim to be, and who are willing to put aside parochial national interests in the interest of bringing peace to the world. They hope that this era will be the one in which self-interest, the force that has driven history since the dawn of history, will simply evaporate. While recognizing that the problem is man's nature, he never placed much hope on religion to come to the rescue. The bloodiest wars in history have been religious wars. Men praying to the same God killed each other by the thousands in the American Civil War, and by the millions in World War I and World War II. Unless men change, a real peace must be built on the assumption that the most that we can do is learn to live with our differences rather than dying over them. Sadly, Mr. Nixon is correct. Too often religion has been the problem rather than the solution. When our first parents chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were thrust out of the Garden of Eden. God in effect told them, go do your own thing. And ever since, whatever man puts his hand to build is a mixture of good and evil. This is especially true when it comes to education, which teaches us how to make a living but not how to live. Science and technology can take us to the moon, but in the end it stand as the Frankenstein monster that can destroy all life from this planet. All that man touches can have a good application, but too often it is used for evil. We have become slaves to email and texting. Television and computers are used to spread pornography. We spend huge sums of money around the world for health care, but do not know the way to good health. Governments are run by kings, presidents, parties, committees, congresses, and parliaments, but none has brought us lasting peace. And when man forms God in his own image, even religion is an enemy to peace. In 1959, the former Soviet Union donated to the United Nations a bronze statue of a man holding a hammer in one hand And a sword in the other, into which he is shaping a plowshare. This work of art, called Let Us Beat Swords into Plowshares, symbolizes man's desire for an end to war and conflict and the conversion of the instruments of war into instruments of peace. The inspiration for this magnificent piece of work comes from the Bible. Notice it in Micah, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 3. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. These are truly beautiful words and they are no doubt the dream of most people. What a wonderful world it would be if this passage were to be true today! But is this merely the stuff of the typing table as Richard Nixon put it? Is such a peace possible? What will it actually take for men to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks? What will cause nations to put down their swords and close their war colleges? As Mr. Nixon rightly points out, it won't be the negotiating table, nor will it be religions of man's making. While some know that the title of this statue originates in the Bible, few know the actual context of the passage and fewer still believe its message. Is this wishful thinking on the part of the author, or is this a powerful prophecy inspired by Almighty God, who has the power to bring to pass what He declares? Notice how peace is going to come. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain, or the government, of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain, or the government, of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But how and when will this be? This all sounds wonderful, but if it's God's will that we have peace on earth, why not now? Why not a thousand years ago? Why not four thousand years ago? When Adam and Eve chose to do their own thing, God in effect said, go do it. You think your way is better? You have 6,000 years to prove it. Set up your own institutions, look to your own intellect, and worship your own gods, but don't expect me to bail you out of the consequences of your chosen actions. Have you ever noticed that mankind never gives God credit for anything good, but if something bad happens, It's an act of God. If you would like to discover more about how this topic impacts your life, visit us online at www.lcgcanada.org to read our featured literature free of charge. The Bible is worthy of your trust and respect and you can prove it as such. It predicts a time of trouble such as the world has never seen. Do you realize that it actually predicts that mankind will come near to destroying all life from this earth? Consider, my friends, this is something that was not possible 2,000 years ago, but beginning in the second half of the 20th century, it has become an ever-present threat. Notice the prediction that we will actually come to the point of cosmicide. Matthew, the 24th chapter, and verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. Yes, man will actually come to that point. That's the bad news. But there is also good news, wonderful news. That is when the God of heaven is going to step in and save man from Himself in spite of Himself. That is when the prophesied Messiah of the Jews is going to come. That event is also known in the biblical scriptures as the second coming of Jesus Christ, and He will do for man what man cannot do for himself, bring lasting peace. He is going to return as a conquering king with the power to establish and maintain peace. Biblical prophecies tell us there is a confrontation coming in the Middle East, where many nations will come against the Jewish state known as Israel. It is then that God will intervene and fight for the Jews, set up a kingdom, and command all nations to come and learn His ways. Sounds strange, doesn't it? But look at the world today. What do you see? Look at the state of affairs in the Middle East. How could anyone know 2,500 years in advance that Jews would be in Jerusalem at this time and that Jerusalem would be the center of today's geopolitical troubles? After all, the Jews were not in control of Jerusalem for hundreds of years. Yet that is exactly what the prophet Zechariah predicted over 2,500 years ago. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah, that's the Jews, and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all the nations of the earth are gathered against it. Zechariah tells us that when these nations come against Jerusalem, They will only take half of the city, indicating that it would be a divided city at the end of the age, part Jewish and part not. Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 4. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Half of the city shall go into captivity. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle and in that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall split in two from east to west. Verse 9 confirms who it is that will take over the rule of the world. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, The Lord is one, and His name one. Many people have the mistaken idea that the return of Christ will bring about the end of the world. They throw about biblical words and expressions such as Armageddon, but don't know the context to understand the big picture in which these words fit. Notice what Zechariah continues to tell us is going to happen after this lopsided battle between the returning Jesus Christ and the armies of rebellious mankind. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is one of the biblical festivals which has been generally rejected by professing Christianity. Yet here we read of the returning Christ dealing not only with individuals, but with great nations who do not come up to observe this festival. Let's see this as we continue in verses 17 through 19, And it shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. But will defeating earth's armies and cutting off the rain supply bring about peace? Not without a change of heart, and this is exactly what the scriptures tell us is going to happen. The book of Revelation tells us that following Christ's intervention to defeat rebellious mankind, He is going to remove a powerful spirit influence from this earth, Satan the devil. This spirit being has been broadcasting into the hearts and minds of all men everywhere thoughts of vanity, of greed, selfishness, and violence. Let's notice his demise described in Revelation, the 20th chapter, beginning in verse 2. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he cast him into the bottomless pit. And shut him up and set a seal upon him so that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years were finished. After this, a new spirit, a new attitude will fill men's minds. We can read of it in various scriptures, but let's notice just one back in Ezekiel, the 11th chapter, beginning in verse 19. Then I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in My statutes, and keep My judgments, and do them. And they shall be My people, and I will be their God. While this world is not going to know peace until that time comes, you can know peace in your personal life. You can live at peace with your family, be a peacemaker with your fellow workers. Treat your employees fairly and generously, and be at peace with your neighbors. And oh, yes, I might add, you can be at peace with yourself. You can have the Holy Spirit of God writing God's ways on your mind and in your hearts right now. In Acts 2nd chapter, verse 38, it explains this. Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. As already stated, there are two opposing ways of life, give and get. The give way, that is, the way of outgoing concern for others, is summed up in what is called the Golden Rule. Matthew 6, verse 12 tells us, Therefore whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. And as Jesus also instructs us in Acts 20, verse 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Or as the Apostle Paul counsels, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. A practical example of this is given by the late syndicated columnist Sidney Harris in the book Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Am? He tells of the time when he was visiting a friend in New York and how they went out to buy a newspaper. The vendor at the stand was quite rude to Harris's friend, and as they walked away, Mr. Harris asked his friend, He was very rude to you, is he always that way? To which his friend replied, Oh yes, he's always that way. Then why were you so nice to him? And his friend replied, Because I don't want him dictating to me how I will live my life. This man was clearly at peace with himself. In this case, he did not change the news vendor, but neither did he make war with him. And this brings us to a major cause of conflict between individuals and between nations, and that is pride. Mr. Harris's friend, whether he realized it or not, was following the Apostle Paul's advice and he was also swallowing his pride, something else the Bible instructs. The Bible is a unique and exceptionally accurate source of truth for many of life's difficult questions, including finding the way to peace. In it, God gives practical principles for living in harmony with your fellow man. So if you'd like to know more about this vital book and how to prove that it is the word of God, please visit the website that will be shown momentarily on your screen and read our informative booklet, The Bible: Fact or Fiction. There you will also find a variety of booklets and articles that show the way that leads to peace. And be sure to come back next week at the same time to learn more about the peace to come in tomorrow's world. Until then, goodbye friends! If you would like to discover more about how this topic impacts your life, visit us online at www.lcgcanada.org to read our featured literature free of charge. The preceding program has been produced by the Living Church of God.